0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Thursday, May 5th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It's Cinco de Mayo. Wait, you said that, but in English. Yeah. Cinco de Mayo is the one holiday that is celebrated by saying the date in the language Spanish. But, and this is weird, there is an American holiday that is expressed by saying the date in English, and that is... The 4th of July. They're not equivalent holidays, but they do have this in common. Kind of weird. But it got us to thinking about a momentous occasion here on the Gist, because Cinco de Mayo is not only the 5th of May, it is our second anniversary. We debuted on Cinco de Mayo of 2014. So I looked up anniversaries. Officially, it's the cotton anniversary, but then there is a new modern take on anniversaries, so I thought it'd be an iPad, but no, it's China. China is more modern. That's not really that modern, is it? Unless they mean the country of China, which is pretty modern. So I went about trying to think of stuff that the Chinese are obsessed by that could be a good gift for a second anniversary, and I think I've come up with it. Wall Street Journal headline the other day, in China, the new casino is iron ore. Investors pour billions into futures at the commodity exchange trading iron ore. Who wouldn't like some iron ore? From it, you could make everything from a beam to a paperclip. Iron ore eggs eggs. Because in addition to iron ore, the Chinese are crazy about trading eggs. This is from the New York Times. China's latest lending deluge has sent money sloshing into unexpected parts of the economy. That includes placing bets on the future productivity of the country's hens. Egg futures have surged by as much as a third since March a sort of move that would be justified if investors believed China's chicken flocks were headed for an unfortunate fate. They don't. All this iron ore trading and this egg trading, it's just based on speculation. But I love egg. Let us call this the second anniversary, the egg anniversary, the eggversary. Eggs are so fundamental. We all come from eggs and to eggs we all will return if we go to Denny's for a breakfast special. Eggs are so fundamental. You know what shape the egg is? It's egg-shaped. What is that? What else does that work with? I guess maybe you could say it works with pears. But I always refer to the pear as uterus-shaped. A lot of people do it the other way, not me. So thank you, listeners, if you were here on our first anniversary, if you're now just joining us anew, this, our egg, second anniversary. On the show today, a new name for the lame duck producer of eggs, lame duck period of the presidency. But first, a top conservative pundit on where his party goes from here, from Trump, all through a prism of Morning Joe. So the other day I was reading a column as I do by Jonah Goldberg of the National Review he writes for them he contributes to Fox in fact soon you'll hear from him he'll he'll be joining us from his office at the American Enterprise Institute and he was talking about how the TV show that I watch the most Morning Joe I actually listen to it via podcast is just so smug about having gotten Trump right Jonah is right about that but I think he touches on some bigger points about the media and Trump and conservatism Jonah is here hello Jonah Hey Mike great to be here So when I watch the show Joe especially always talks about how the rest of the media missed Trump and he emphasizes that he got Trump. Then again, there was a time where he kept saying and Mika kept saying and all the gang kept kept saying, are we really missing the Bernie Sanders phenomenon? Is this mostly about him getting Trump right or the media and Morning Joe is a microcosm of that, just liking the unexpected and change in conflict?
0: I think that there are other things going on with Joe and Mika when it comes to Donald Trump. I think they like him personally. I think that they are personally invested in him. I think they're charmed by him. And I think a lot of their analysis, which turned out to be correct, stemmed in part from uh, something going on off camera in terms of them rooting for him. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to say that Trump is going to do a lot better than people expect, or that Trump is better than everybody on the stage. Those are not strictly speaking, value judgments, right? And it doesn't speak to whether or not what Trump is doing is horrifying or terrible or distasteful. Right,
1: it's a, th- it's a theater review, and you could be saying, wow, the guy who played Iago was best, but let's look at Iago's character. He's evil. Right.
0: Or like, The way I look at it sometimes is there's this great scene in Don Quixote, you know, the Cervantes novel, where this guy goes into the center of town and picks up a dog and sticks a tube in its butt and inflates the dog till it gets really huge and then pulls the tube out of the butt and it lets loose this giant farting sound and runs away. And the crowd is like mesmerized by it and he says, hey, you think it's easy to inflate a dog? Uh, <laughs> just because you do something that gets a lot of attention doesn't mean that it's it's something to be applauded or approved of and we live in now this sort of reality show Kardashian culture where celebrity and and success seem to be their own reward absent you know any notions of right or wrong or civility or anything in between where, where this becomes a real problem in terms of morning joe is, Joe will defend, and I like Joe Scarborough, but you know, and Joe will defend himself by saying, hey look, I've criticized Donald Trump plenty of times, I said his KKK remarks were indefensible. But that apparently has no teeth whatsoever because then the next day he talks about how, well, he's, he's cleaning up and he's going to win this primary and that caucus and all the rest. If, if he says that the KKK remarks disqualify That's him the from word the job used. of
1: president. That, not just indefensible, but disqualifying, which has a definition, which should be, mean that in the future, Joe is saying, well, as we know, he's disqualified. But Joe's not saying that. Right. He never once goes back to this and says – he yeah. said. He likes to say that he said it, yeah. but he never says it as if
0: it's binding on him in any way. If I said that somebody was disqualified from being president, I would like to st- – think that I would keep bringing it up because, particularly if the person doesn't apologize or recant, then presumably that judgment holds. If I say someone's a disc, is disqualified to be my kid's teacher, I don't go to the next parent-teacher conference saying, well, you know, how do you do this week? You right. know, I mean, it, it, there's something, There's a disconnect there that is very strange to me.
1: Or credit the teacher for pivoting. <laughs> right. <laughs> but is this one quirky show, or in some ways, is this a microcosm? I mean, my take is it is and it isn't. On the one hand, I think most 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 of the media has been mocking and condemnatory of Trump and yet they can't look away and they give him so much more airtime and space and that has helped him.
0: Oh, I agree with that. I just wrote a column, it'll be out after this, or before this comes out, sort of making a a similar point. You know, in movies and books, the MacGuffin, right? The MacGuffin is the thing that the hero wants. And one of my problems with the way that Barack Obama has been covered is that he's just generally seen as the hero in whatever story, and whatever public policy goal he has, will the hero succeed in getting it? And there's not a lot of conversation about the actual substance of public policy. I don't think Donald Trump is the hero for a lot of people in the mainstream media, but he is the most entertaining show in town, and he is popular, and he intimidates a lot of journalists. You know, there's that CNN anchor who said that she, she soft-pedals coverage of Trump because she's afraid of getting angry tweets from people, which is not exactly like Edward R. Edward R. Murrow stuff. And I no, think that No, he never
1: complained about tweets. But- but, also there's this, <laughs> but there's also the thing, of the, and they let him call in by phone, which gives him a huge advantage.
0: Right, and they also, but they also treat, you know, simply because every, everything that doesn't kill him and he gets more popular, it then becomes sort of mainstreamed and acceptable and normalized. What disgusts me about, and this happens very much in the conservative press, it happens in the press generally as well, what happens is, is you start sort of lowering the bar of acceptability if if donald trump had been polling at three percent in the polls for the entire republican primary so many of his comments and gas and statements and and all that would be treated with such moral indignation and outrage but because he keeps doing well in the polls that somehow makes the comments more acceptable. And I just don't think it should work that way. If if someone says two plus two is five, I don't care if he's really popular.
1: Do you think, though, if he had been call to the carpet more, and if the coverage had been more in lines with what we both think should be proper press practice, that he wouldn't have won. Because I do think that there are a couple things. He came out with the strongest anti-immigration position with that wall. And that was something that the base loved. And that was something that the party itself was not giving to the base, the party elites. And then when he came out with his ban on Muslims or the idea for a temporary ban on Muslims, it was anathema to the party elites. And yet the base loved it. So he's actually, you know, if, if if what we want from a politician is to give voice to the policies that we like, he is doing that. So do you think even great coverage would have stopped him from winning? Uh,
0: I, you know, look, I, I don't know. There are you know, in my world, the sort of water cooler conversations and recriminations about how this happened are raging right now. And I think that there are too many, you know, sort of what in social science, they call an overdetermined phenomenon. Mm There's just too many reasons for why this happened. And there's so many people who deserve and institutions that deserve blame that, you know, you'd need FEMA tents to distribute all the blame that deserves to go around. Everything would have been fixed. I think one of the more interesting dynamics of all of this, which sort of confuses a lot of people, is that Donald Trump's strongest support actually comes from the least conservative elements of the Republican Party. You know, for 30 years, we've been told that the more conservative you get, the more racist and nativist and all of these things you get. And I understand why people make those arguments. We don't need to get in the weeds of all that. But if you just look at his voter support, it's the people who don't care much about abortion, who don't care much about, you know, tax cuts, who don't care much about constitutionalism and limited government, and all that kind of stuff. It's the moderate and self ideed sort of liberal Republicans who are giving him the biggest line share report. And Ted Cruz, deeply flawed candidate, that was like the one constituency that Ted Cruz was winning. That and young people in Indiana were the very conservative. And so there's this weird sort of, he's just defying all of the normal scripts. But I got to say, you know, I sometimes I feel like I'm taking crazy pills (laughs) that I think this stuff matters to me
1: and and to so few others. I listed in the beginning your credentials, National Review, Fox, AEI. So in your world, do you get the sense that if Trump is the nominee, which is quite likely, and if he loses, that the reckoning will be something about the party, something about conservatism, or will it just be? what are you going to do? This guy was Trump. He was this one-off phenomenon. It doesn't teach us anything and doesn't really mean that we need to reform. Look at how well we do in state races and Senate races and everywhere else. There's no real need to reform. He doesn't hold the mirror up to us in any way. So what, what do you think the conversation will be? You
0: know, one of the things I'm kind of grateful to Trump about is the fact that he is proving that the Reagan package of 1981 uh, let's cut marginal income tax rates, you know, even lower, all that kind of stuff. That that stuff doesn't sell anymore. And you know, there have been some conservatives. I certainly haven't been at the forefront of it, but my friends like Ramesh Panuru and Yuval Levin and and a few others, the guys at the Conservative Reform Network, they've been arguing for a long time now that what. Conservatives need to do is hold true to sort of Reaganite principles, but update them to the needs of the of America in two thousand and sixteen and that might mean doing more for the you know the working class it might mean that we don 't worry so much about top marginal tax rates for the, for their income taxes, but we worry about payroll taxes. I mean, there are a lot of things that it could mean. And for the last five years, the, the sort of high priests of conservative purity have been attacking the conservative reformers saying, oh, you're sellouts, you're squishes, you're me too Republicans, like the guys who said the new deal was okay. We need more pure Reaganism. And the sort of silver lining of Trump is he comes in like Godzilla into Tokyo and he tears all of that apart. And so the hope I, you know, it's, it's a rosy scenario because I think he's going to do enormous damage to the Republican brand with all the nativism and the racism and all that kind of stuff. But one hopeful outcome of this is that when you have such a scorched earth, kind of disaster, you, you set the soil up where you can plant something new. That would be my hope. What the reality is, is, you know, they, which, I mean, I just had an argument about this over lunch. There are some people who don't like Trump who say, you've got to let him have the nomination, let him run and lose by Goldwaterite right proportions. And then we can say, see, you guys screwed up by doing this. And there are other people who say, wait a second, I don't. I can't let this guy speak for me. He is going to tarnish the brand of conservatism in the Republican Party. Conservatives spent three generations trying to take over the Republican Party, and we're just going to hand this guy to the keys without a fight. That's crazy talk. No one really has a great answer to this question, and so much of it depends on Trump. Trump could do something smart like pull together a big sort of shadow government of, of eminence grease, respected conservatives and Republican politicians and get Republicans to vote for the sort of the whole government rather than just Donald Trump or he could continue, you know, to be Donald Trump. And my bet is, as he continues to be Donald Trump, in the same way that in Aesop's fable the scorpion has to sting the frog because that's
1: just what scorpions do. It is in his nature, yes.
0: Yeah, uh, so many unknowns right now.
1: Jonah Goldberg, Fox National Review, talking to us from the American Enterprise Institute. Although when you hear this, he will have fled for Europe. Coincidence? I don't know. Thank you, Jonah. <laughs> Thanks, man. Appreciate it. <laughs> And now the spiel if it quacks like a duck. One positive side effect of the political primary season, well, beyond giving us all a civics lesson in the now purely hypothetical question of how an open convention would work, is that the circular firing squad on the Republican side and the intra-party sniping on the Democrat side took the heat off the man in the White House. The economy, as this man laid out a couple of months ago before introducing his budget to Congress, is going quite well might even say the 21st century version of gangbusters. So this is the first time that the unemployment rate has dipped below 5% in almost eight years. Americans are working. All told, over the past six years, our businesses have added 14 million new jobs. 71 straight months of private sector job growth extends the longest streak on record. Well, it's now at 73 straight months of job growth and things are going well throughout the economy. The prosperity has been less pronounced for the poor, who really like Obama, and more pronounced for Wall Street, which includes factions who frequently rail against him, even though $1.5 million invested at the beginning of his term in the S&P 500 is now over $2 million. Speaking of the markets, that is where the term that describes Obama's current status comes from. In the 18th century, a person who defaulted in the London Stock Exchange was said to waddle about Exchange Alley with the gate of a lame duck. But Obama isn't a lame duck. He's had great success since the 2014 primaries, or maybe it's just the case that America is noticing his success, noticing our success. Another two-term Democrat famously said, it's the economy, stupid. But it seems that we're frequently stupid about the economy. Even as things are going well, we say, oh, it doesn't feel like it or our emphasis is on sectors of society where it's not going that well, attention is paid excessively to people who would tell us the economy is much worse than it really is. But now Americans are actually beginning to think that things are improving. Though if you ask them the question flat out, is the economy getting better or worse? They still say worse. 59% said worse. 37% said better to Gallup. Although when Obama was elected, that number, 84% were saying worse and 12% were saying better and they were right then. So it's progress, although people aren't sanguine about the upward tick of the the economy. Though, in early 2015, there was a time when more people were saying the economy is getting better than getting worse. They were right then. They've been wrong the last few years saying that it's getting worse. There's another lag in perception that's weird, and it has to do with approval ratings. Right now, President Obama has an approval rating of 52%. Ronald Reagan, the same point in his presidency, had an approval rating of 50%. So I think without the intense criticism that's focused on the president. President personally, without the talking down of the economy, without the smearing Obamacare and saying the stimulus was a disaster, when it's just the lived experience of the consequences of Obama's economic decisions, he winds up doing pretty good—pretty good for a president. The only president who's never cracked above 25% approval among members of the other party, which means that for people who are willing to give Obama a chance, everyone except died in the wool conservatives or Republicans, people pretty much like him. And they like what's happening in America. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, I thought we were experiencing this anger, this backlash, this populist moment, this populist movement. You know, maybe we are. But let's talk about the populism on the Republican side for a second. That populism, that so-called populism fostered by economic displacement, that does come wrapped in a ban on Muslims, surrounded by a misogynistic rant, walled off from Mexico. So yeah, maybe some of Trump's popularity is populist, but his fans aren't. The worst off among Republicans. And I don't think it's economic left behind populism as much as don't tell me not to make disparaging remarks about women and people who aren't my color type populism, if that is indeed populism. On the Democratic side, what about Bernie? Well, he lost. Hillary Clinton's vision won the day. This doesn't mean that Democrats are content, but I just think a lot of the pitchfork storming the barricade talk was overblown. Forget what I think. That's what voters said. And the third thing is, Obama does agree with the idea of distributing the wealth. He's not against populism. He just doesn't take radical steps to get there. I mean, Fox News will tell you he does. But look at the banks. They're still open. And I read you those figures about how Wall Street's doing. So I think what we need to do is reimagine the idea of the lame duck presidency. Yes, this might be the time where he's robbed of his ability to get major legislation through Congress, although two Republican-controlled houses would never pass his legislation anyway. But I think this period represents a lessening of the intense vitriol, a break in the most fevered criticism. He's not so much like a lame duck as he is an old dog, how you love your old dog, who takes up less of your attention these days now that you have kids, who sits on his bed pretty contentedly most of the time. It's funny how we thought the old dog required so much of our mental energy, but now with these youngsters scrapping and fighting and demanding our attention, the old dog's kind of familiar and kind of nice. Maybe you forget all the bad stuff the old dog did, like chewing up the rug or peeing in the still-opened base in Guantanamo or that cash for clunkers thing he was always talking about. Actually, that was quite a failure. Or the time he tore up the neighbor's flower bed but we grow to appreciate our old dog to reflect on what he's really given us and we remember he's not going to be around forever that's it for today's show andrea salenzi has produced the gist for these two years but she's done so with fortitude thus deserving some spinach in her eggs this is her egg florentine anniversary Steve Lichtai has been here only a few months. Let's call it the unfertilized egg anniversary. And then there's Mary Wilson. This is her first day on the job. More on her to come. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. What a network. So many offerings. It's the Denver omelet of podcast networks. The gist. Now it's over. Easy. Umperu that do peru. And thanks for listening. Right now on BuzzFeed, a video of a dog being inflated via the anus is the number one trending thing.